X Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This food industry-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to help keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing top three fastest-growing beverage brands in 2023 and seaweed cultivation, helping solve global nutrition and climate challenges. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Food Podcast. I'm Sydney Perlmutter, Senior Food Industry Journalist and Webinar Moderator at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid and Vera Kovacevic. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to start us off with a sort of a, recor- um, a recurring story that I feel like I do um, probably once a year. Um, that is the top three or five or however many fastest growing beverage brands so far this year. And just a forewarning, we're not going to be talking about the Pepsis and the Coca-Colas of the world. So you'll probably be hearing some brands you haven't necessarily heard of before. So we're in a very dynamic and ever-evolving food and beverage industry, but it's not just about, uh, growth isn't just about size, but it's about the speed as well. And the fastest growing beverage brands are those that have tapped into consumers' evolving demands, bringing to the table innovative products that combine taste, convenience, affordability, and sustainability. So the top three list that I'm going to talk about is based on the Financial Times ranking of the America's fastest growing company. Companies in 2023. And this is a list of 500 companies in the Americas that have the highest growth in publicly disclosed revenues between 2018 and 2021. And this list was compi- compiled with research firm Statista and ranks entrants from across the Americas by the compound annual growth rate or CAGR of their revenue. Since the Financial Times ranking encompasses a spectrum of industries, though, we'll, fo- we'll solely focus on um, the beverage brands that made the list. So I will start us off with number one. And that is Athletic Brewing Company. So this is a Connecticut-based direct-to-consumer business that specializes in producing non-alcoholic craft beer. Founded in 2017, the company offers a wide range of products, including alcohol-free IPAs, stouts, and lagers. Some of its most popular products include Run Wild IPA, Upside Upside Dawn Golden Ale, Freeway NA DIPA, and uh, All Out Stout, among others. Now, in terms of revenue, the company's trailing revenue in the last year is estimated to range between 25 and 50 million, and its website attracts nearly 5,000 unique visitors per month and nearly 14,000 monthly total visitors. With a CAGR of 430%, Athletic Brewing Company ranks fourth overall on Financial Times' list and first in the beverage category. Now, the second brand is Iconic Brands, and this is a vertically integrated beverage company offering a unique portfolio of wines, spirits, alcoholic ice pops, ready-to-drink cocktails, and mixers. And they're based in Amityville, New York. The company owns and operates a number of alcoholic beverage brands, including Bellissima Prosecco, Sonia Sangria, and Bella Spritz. 
Since its founding in 2005, Iconic Brands has been a leader in the development, design, and delivery of alcoholic beverages. And as such, its total revenue in the last 12 months is estimated at nearly $15 million. It's growing at a CAGR of 106%, and Iconic Brands is ranked 90th overall on Financial Times' list and second in the beverage category. And third up is Smith Tea Maker. This is an integrated omni-channel luxury tea company based in Portland, Oregon. Since its founding in 2009, the company has prided itself on providing exceptional and accessible teas and other plant-based beverages. And Smith Tea Maker leverages premium restaurants, offices, and retailers to extend its access to new uh, consumers and households, both in the U.S. and in select international markets. And despite heavy competition, the third fastest growing beverage brand has carved out a niche for itself in the premium tea market. Smith Tea Maker has raised a total of $350,000 over just one round of funding, and its estimated annual revenue is currently $8.6 million per year. It's growing at a CAGR of 89% and is ranked 406 overall on Financial Times' list and third in the beverage category. So I want to know, firstly, have, any, have either of you ever um, heard of these brands before? No, actually, like, um, actually, maybe the Athletic Brewing Company. I think I've heard of that one. Um, but yeah, it seems uh, that these are like part of like this big list. And uh, sorry, are they the top three, right? So or yes. just among like... So... In the yep. fi- on the Financial Times' list of these 500 companies, um, it was not just food and beverage companies. It was a whole plethora of mm. um, industries. So what I did was I just broke oh, it down the by the food and beverage ones and then further <laughs> broke it down by just the beverage ones. And okay. funny enough, the beverage ones, the, these three that were on there were the only three. So I could only have oh. a top three. No worries. And the other... Um, I think 13 were food uh, related companies. So look out for a list of the top three or five or however many food companies based on this list. But for now, we're just focusing on the beverage beverages. And I also agree, I had only really ever heard of um, the Athletic Brewing Company um, and not Iconic Brands or Smith Tea Maker. But what about yourself, Vera? Yeah, I've never heard of any of them. In fact, when I looked at the Smith Tea Maker logo for a second, I confused it with like the jam producing company, which I think is oh, also Smuckers. Smuckers oh, yeah. starts with an S. Yeah, it's all caps and it's also short. So I was like, wait, have I heard about them? But then I was like, no, I haven't. But I remember before on the podcast we talked about how like the non-alcoholic um, beverages, especially like last year around the holidays, it's becoming such a popular thing. So I'm not really surprised that, um, you know, Athletic Brewing Company did the best out of these three, is doing the best, because I think it's like a really on-demand thing for like fun, you know, non-alcoholic drinks or with an extremely low alcohol content that you can kind of like uh, drink socially with other people. Yeah, I also wasn't surprised either. Um, What was crazy was that you know it's it's fourth overall on on the list so fourth out of 500 companies so it's growing at Mm -hmm. a exponentially high rate um and then you know we have actually kind of a decent mix we have a non-alcoholic company we have a pretty pretty alcoholic company yeah i was just gonna say that it's a good mix of uh you know it captures a lot of variety in this space 
Yeah. And, and then we've got tea. Yeah. Um, so what I thought was, you know, that doesn't really surprise me that we don't have like dairy, for example, or like plant-based mm milk or or coffee um, even that's true that's mm. true mm. i feel like it's um that that's actually a good point to bring up like it's maybe the I coffee f- space is saturated and you don't see a lot of new companies coming out in this space do you or well I think you see, you know, your more niche, smaller batch companies. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's going to be an entrant that comes along and outgrows Starbucks mm-hmm. um, or, you know, Nescafe. Yeah, um, Maxwell. Just, and- <laughs> yeah, all the, all the ones that we know and love. So um, I think where um, these three brands sort of got their ends was that the non-alcoholic space is like growing pretty quickly, I would say much more than it used to. Um, And this iconic brand has been around since 2005. Um, So it's, it's, it's had its in for a while, I suppose. And then Smith Tea Maker is just sort of a niche tea company. Um, that yeah, I'd never heard of either. Um, I'm not a huge tea person myself, but I think people really love like more luxurious tea mm-hmm. options, or at least um, at least this one. And they really did a good job by sort of getting an in with luxury like spaces and restaurants mm-hmm. and retailers, um, you know, to get their to get their name across. Um, but are you surprised that, you know, these brands that we've never really heard of are growing faster than like your Coca-Colas and your Pepsis? No, I'm not surprised because I think um, the amount of growth Coca-Cola or Pepsi can do is not going to be ex- exponential. Mm-hmm. Like these kind of newer, uh, more you know, newer companies in the startup phase typically have the potential for like an exponential growth, whereas the established companies, it's not going to be like as high, right? Mm -hmm. So I think many companies on the list are probably, uh, well, I wouldn't say they're startups anymore, definitely not startups. They've probably launched a product or service already, but they're probably relatively new and like they're just starting to catch on. But I I don't, yeah, their revenue is nowhere, of course, near as like, you know, the top 20 beverage brands, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but they have potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important to make the distinction between, you know, top um, beverage brands in terms of revenue and then yeah. top in terms of sales, uh, or sorry, in terms of uh, growth, yeah, yeah. Um, and how quickly they're growing. So I totally mm-hmm. agree. I think that, um, you know, while, while Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Nestle, you know, aren't on the this list, it's just because they are already so big and their growth rate can't be, um, you know, as high as newer entrants to the market. What is the current uh, top beverage company? Actually, I'm just going to look this up. In terms of revenue? Yeah. Just my guess see. would be Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, that would be my guess. PepsiCo. Oh, is it Pepsi? <laughs> it's Pepsi takeover. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I know in the past they've had it out for one another. You know, they've always been yeah. rivals. That actually, you know, that that doesn't surprise me just because Pepsi is also like... Yeah, they have branched out into a lot more. It, yeah, exactly. Into like, yeah. and not just beverages, like snacks too. They have, I think they have a bigger snacking division um, now. So it's arguable whether, you know, you could even just call them a beverage company. Um, yeah. but I think they're, you know, the name 
sake of it, uh, yeah. That that makes sense to me. Um, Coca-Cola may get back up there one day, though. I, I think in the past they have been on top. Um, but yeah, they're yeah. number three right now. There's like some Belgium company. But again, it depends on what list you look at, what country. I think this is, I think, I hope this is global, but yeah. Yeah, it should be global. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's tough, you know, to break down um, various lists because different lists will tell you different things. And mm -hmm. that's why I just wanted to stick to, you know, one ranking and then sorting it by, you know, uh, the, the the industry, because had I looked at different lists, they probably would have oh, would yeah, have told sure. me different things. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, um, you know, Kudos to these companies. Yeah, um, I'll definitely, yeah. mm -hmm, I'll definitely be having them on my radar um, in terms of new products, and um, you know, I'll check back this list again next year to see if they've uh, if they've continued their growth or uh, if if they've gone down a little bit. All right, moving on to another story. We have a new study by the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University that proposed seaweed cultivation as a promising solution to address malnutrition and mitigate climate change simultaneously. Now, this study was published in the Global Food Security Journal, and it revealed both the advantages and some of the challenges of seaweed cultivation. So the research revealed that seaweed cultivation could significantly elevate income levels for farmers, particularly those in low- and middle-income countries, or LMICs, specifically in coastal regions of Africa and Southeast Asia. Compared to livestock farming, the seaweed farming is more sustainable, requires no land, fresh water, or chemical fertilizers. And the study further revealed that as global demand for nutrient-dense seaweed products increases, seaweed cultivation could be particularly profitable. And this profit surge could enhance the purchasing power of those who produce, process, package, and export the microalgae, leading to healthier dietary habits. Patrick Webb, who is a professor of nutrition at the Friedman School and senior author of the study, explained that one of the primary challenges of food insecurity in, lower, in LMICs is the unaffordability of nutritious diets. And Webb posited that for a significant portion of the approximately 3.5 billion individuals worldwide who cannot afford a healthy diet, seaweed cultivation could result in increased income and improved nutrition throughout, through market purchases. Now, the seaweed crop has been cultivated in parts of Asia for centuries using fairly straightforward techniques. Farmers usually attach lines of rope to the algae's roots, which then absorb nutrients from the water to feed the plant. And six to eight weeks later, the seaweed is harvested manually and sun-dried. Seaweed cultivation is not only easy, but it's also environmentally beneficial. Seaweed carries a small carbon footprint and has the potential to lower the ocean's carbon levels. The study showed that perennials like brown algae farms can absorb up to 10 tons of CO2 per hectare of sea uh, surface annually. And moreover, incorporating seaweed into livestock feed could substantially decrease methane gas emissions as well. And seaweed cultivation, though, isn't without its obstacles. Increasingly acidic ocean water uh, waters due to climate change could hamper the growth of healthy, edible seaweed. And furthermore, the primary export value of seaweed lies in its extracts used as ingredients rather than the whole sea vegetable. 
While countries that produce and export brown, green, and red seaweeds already possess the the necessary infrastructure for effective processing, testing, and regulation, most LMICs lack these resources. And moreover, limited data on processing bottlenecks and consumer patterns, which are largely owned by food companies, hinder investment in seaweed cultivation in many LMICs. But despite these challenges, the opportunities that seaweed uh, cultivation offers are vast. In countries like Indonesia, where seasonal labor is readily available, seaweed cultivation has thrived. In industrial-scale seaweed farms are possible, leading to significant exports of carrageenan-rich seaweed species. Webb emphasized that not all coastlines will be suitable for seaweed cultivation, but many will. To expand the practice, governments need to create food safety regulations and an environment conducive to its growth. Seaweed cultivation in LMICs is in its nascent stage, but the potential it offers is exciting. Webb suggested that if ministries of agriculture and fisheries took the practice seriously, it could be a game changer for these countries and potentially unearthing a gold mine of opportunities. So obviously, you know, seaweed cultivation and, you know, consuming seaweed is not new whatsoever. But I thought this study sort of brought to light something that seems so obvious, but that I'd never really thought of before in that, you know, it's not just a source of income for um, lower and middle income countries, but also a source of nutrition and it's relatively easy. Um, But, you know, what do you guys think about this? Um, Could it be, um, you know, I don't want to say could it, could it solve nutrition and climate challenges, but could it be, you know, helpful in doing so? Yeah, I think there's a huge potential for it to like suck the carbon out of the water. Um, So I think that's a huge benefit there. And I, yeah, I just think it's, it's great for those, you know, lower to middle income countries to have, uh, you know, more revenue um, and, you know, take more advantage of their coastal waters. Um, However, I do think there are probably some disadvantages of growing seaweed itself that probably need to be considered. Like, for example, I read that it could probably um, decrease the amount of light penetration in that area. I know it's not a huge area of the coastal water that it's going to cover, and it's certainly going to be spread out, but it still decreases the amount of light, which is not that great for, like, um, you know, other... Uh, species plants. yeah, yeah, yeah. species in the area and yeah. you know i also think that the whole like transporting and drying and um, processing the seaweed does emit some co2 itself yeah. so i think mm-hmm. they should first calculate like okay how much co2 does that that process emit and how much co2 does the seaweed extract from the seawater and then they could claim like, like oh yeah this carbon yeah yeah the, the calculate the net <clears throat> carbon of the whole entire process but You know, I think it's such a cool thing, like the seaweed farming. I I saw it done in a recent movie I was watching. It was called Mm -hmm. Ticket to Paradise. So I saw it done in the movie and it just looks so cool. And um, yeah, people are literally walking into the water. It's about like the level of their waist um, and like, uh, you know, uh, farming it and collecting it by hand. I thought that was really neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this has a lot of potential and, you know, um, very positive on all ends in terms of um, opening up new income and revenue options for lower income and middle income countries. Um, All of, you know, how they're touting that it it could be beneficial in terms of uh, being, 
you know, a carbon sink and all of that. But yeah, like Vera was saying, like, I think uh, they're probably maybe overstating some of the benefits and maybe overlooking some of uh, the potential um, negatives here and uh, don't want to be a Debbie Downer. But the thing is, um, I find when anything gets, you know, hyper commercialized and industrialized, like you're going to be prone to some of the issues in any other kind of crop um, industry. So here too, like if you start producing at small scales, okay, but once you start going large scale, right, then what happens? Uh, Then you're going to run into the same issues where, you know, if you're growing mammoth amounts of seaweed, like that's definitely going to have an impact on the ecosystems. Um, that it's being grown in and, uh, yeah, all of the things that come along with it. Right. And then you get competition, you get labor exploitation, you get all of those, you know, all of the things that are associated with, um, high scale, um, industrial like farming. And also like if the business grows, it's, you know, going to be prone to uh, things like that as well. So it sounds all great now because it's small scale but i'm just afraid yeah if it explodes like it could bring up a lot of negatives one thing i will say is that the price of seaweed at grocery stores like i've been to some uh, supermarkets that sell it and it's it in my opinion it's pretty high for the amount of seaweed you get so i think they're going to have a good revenue off of their endowers like i don't think um yeah, I well, think... you'll see cheap seaweed someday, and then you're gonna know how it's like <laughs> everything, right? It's like you get coffee for so cheap and everything else for so cheap because of like you know the industrial practices that uh, these big companies um, will uh, implement. And so I'm just afraid that this might be something that uh, could turn into that as well. But hopefully not. Hopefully, you know, there's a lot more awareness now, like in the climate and in the um, you know, environments that we live in, um, just socially as well. Like there's a lot more awareness about labor rights and, um, and things like that. So, and the environment, of course. So hopefully, um, it'll be done in a sustainable and environmentally friendly way and not be prone to the mispractices that we've seen in so many other, um, industries. That is a very good point. I was thinking, you know, like at some point, um, uh, coffee beans and cocoa beans, mm-hmm. you know, were were a new phenomenon, like niche. And, and, yeah, you know, were niche and new and in people's backyards, maybe yep. in these countries. <laughs> they were, you know, it was small batch. Like at at yep. some point, I have to imagine, you know, a long, long time ago. And now mm-hmm. you're right, like they they've become completely mass produced and commercialized, and um and that's because they're fantastic crops and people love them and people love seaweed too. So you're you're kind of yeah you're you're making me a little skeptical of I'm sorry of, no 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 <laughs> I, it was a, a very good point now like mm-hmm. we're so much more aware of the issues right that mm-hmm. come along with with uh those kinds of practices so hopefully we've learned our lessons from those industries and uh yeah, do better this time. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, seaweed is, I while I never eat it, you know, by itself, I will have sushi, you know, every yeah. now and then. <laughs> and it's obviously an undeniable part of eating, of the sushi eating experience. <laughs> and so I'm sure we've all, you know, enjoyed seaweed every now and then. Um, but yeah, I guess if we see the price go down in the grocery store, uh, we've, something's gone flags, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or very, very right, but... um 
yeah, I I don't know about that. You can't, you know, not everyone is going to benefit, I suppose, from, um, you know, mass mass production. And I think that seaweed is probably already like mass produced. It's it's really just a matter of like if new um, if markets new, open up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If new markets open up and new uh, countries get into um, you know, seaweed cultivation and which would be a huge investment in their part too, because like the study was saying, you know, the, the countries that are, that already have the infrastructure are, are fine and it's been very successful, but ones that don't, it's going to be very, you know, expensive and it will be a risk. No doubt. It will definitely be a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Food Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Food Industry Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com, or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.